Welcome to the MADECAST, a series about interactive media as part of the Museum of Art and Digital Entertainment's ongoing efforts to preserve games history. For the past few years, your support has allowed us to produce lectures and interviews like the one you'll hear in a few minutes. We've got a very special episode this week. We'll be talking with John Romero, a pioneering game designer and one of the creators of the original Doom, which is a few days from celebrating its 30th anniversary. We get into some of the game's history, the tools that helped build it, and some of Romero's more recent projects. Hope you enjoy it. So welcome to the Maidcast for the Museum of Art and Digital Entertainment. Today we are joined by legendary game person John Romero, whose credits include Wolfenstein, Doom, Quake, and his continued releasing projects through his and his wife's studio, Romero Games who are about to release, if I'm not mistaken, Sigil 2, which is the uh, on the upcoming 30th anniversary of the Doom's release. And uh, John, welcome to the Maidcast. Hey, thanks for having me. <laughs> uh, so first off, yeah, you've got a release coming up. Could you tell me about Sigil 2? Yeah, um, Sigil 1 was the 25th anniversary of Doom's like celebration for me. I wanted to, to, to do more than just tweet happy birthday to Doom, you know, like every year. <laughs> Happy 25th birthday. To me, it seemed like, well, that's a big number. And and so I thought for Doom's 30th, that's also a pretty big number. I was like, why don't I make another set of levels? I'm kind of warmed up, you know? Um, yeah. Why don't I make a sixth episode? Because the number six fits pretty well with Doom. So um, <laughs> I thought, why not? And, uh, and so I started working on it, you know, the beginning of the year. Like, I'm going to do a 30th anniversary release. And... And so that's what I've been working on. And I got, um, you know, last time there was, uh, the music was by Buckethead. Buckethead made a special song just for Sigil. Um, and all the rest of the music I chose from his, his, from his incredible amount of albums. Like he has, you know, 600, 700 albums. Um, so I picked really great stuff and it was, it was really great to, to, it basically introduced a lot of people to Buckethead who hadn't heard of him and could appreciate that kind of music. Um, and then with Sigil 2, you know, I had, a lot, I had a lot of design goals with Sigil 1. And with Sigil 2, it was like raise the stakes on design goals. Um, so I, you know, so basically every level in this nine level uh, set has, you know, checklists of making sure that it is, it is more than what Sigil 1 was. And the cover art is just unbelievable. Same artist. Who did the cover art for Sigil One? Uh, both the Beast Box and the Big Box has returned to do Sigil Two's cover, which is just like the most metal cover I've ever seen. It's in. Incredible. I saw it. It is pretty cool. <laughs> and just for the listeners' sake, Sigil is what, what essentially amounts to a mod of uh, of Doom, uh, and and you've been releasing these as as uh, like unofficial sequels, and this is the sixth one total. Um, yeah. And when you say that you, you know, you, you challenge yourself with these nine levels, um, can you talk to me about kind of what that checklist was and, and like for you, what does a game design challenge look like? Well, the fun thing with, with, uh, Sigil, Sigil one had so many, like, you know, that was, it was a harder, uh, task because coming back to doom after 25 years, it's like, okay, how can I try to do something new and consistent with nine solid levels that people haven't seen in the original doom. Um, and, uh, and can I do something in design that I haven't seen before? And I, you know, I, I was able to do that, which was pretty cool. Um, 
and uh and so with sigil two like the difficulty for sigil one was the level from a pistol start they have to be very difficult for me to finish hmm. like i probably have to like try and play it over and over again with sigil two i raise the stakes on difficulty and basically i can't finish a level if i'm not saving and reloading <laughs> nice so they're totally doable with a pistol start <laughs> but i have to save and reload to actually finish the the level because these things they're adventures like they are some of them are really long and even the first level is the longest biggest first level i've ever made you know in anything so huh. it is a big uh first level that has so much stuff going on uh, and it's and it's all just because i'm just warmed up on you know i'm doom level design and uh, just a lot of like, I'm always trying to make stuff that I haven't done before when I'm making something. It's like, what have, what have I not done before while I'm making this? What yeah. concept am I, am I coming? Can I come up with a concept of progression or of, of unlocking or just like the way things look in the screen, but like also engaging the enemies and how do I wake them up and how do I, you know, how do I put things in this level that have not been done much? Mm -hmm before in doom levels. And one of the, one of the things with sigil one, I combined a shootable trigger of which there are only three types in the original doom. Um, and they only do three specific things. <laughs> it's just like open a door and make, make the floor go to the ceiling. And there's another one. And so they're very limited what you can do with a shootable trigger in doom one. So it's, so my, my design idea with sigil one was take the shootable trigger that was not, um, not used much, take the Sprite that also was used maybe two times in all of doom, which is the evil eye. It's called evil eye in it. And I call it a Baphomet's eye. And basically if you shoot the eye, a wall closes it up showing that it's completed. And that shooting of the eye will either open up a secret or it will progress the player forward. Hmm. And so that can design consistency is through all of sigils levels and the first level of sigil one has like five of those eyes and i'm training the player to look for them and they start getting harder and harder to spot as you go through that first level and, th and then you're kind of trained i'm gonna look for the hidden eye basically hmm. um so with sigil two i use the same thing the same idea of this this eye and uh and you shoot it and you progress or a secret is revealed, something like that. Mm -hmm. And that that's that was based off of two parts of Doom that were very seldomly used. And so I, I, I decided to add one more very seldomly used part of Doom. And that is the 32nd door. And what that means is when a level starts in Doom, you can make a door close 30 seconds after the level has started, which means I have a cool secret mm -hmm. room with all kinds of stuff in it but if 30 seconds goes by, that door closes forever, right? And so you miss out on that stuff. And of course, I put the door somewhere where you're having to fight through all kinds of stuff to even get to the door. <laughs> so you might not make it in 30 seconds, you know? It, it almost sounds like you have these kind of like leftover blunt tools and you're just finding new ways to like sharpen them and use them. And that's that's really fascinating that you just kind of have this like soup of all these different things and you're like, okay, how can we make this interesting? Yeah, and I did, and, and with the first 30-second door on level one, I came up with, a, so in Sigil 1, there are cyber demons on every level, <laughs> if you're an ultra-violent, right? And the way that I got the player to kill the cyber demons in Sigil 1 was with telefrags. 
So part of the physics of the phys- the phys- the, the, the the physical world of Doom is that if you teleport into another body, it just gets destroyed no matter how big it is. And I use that same idea in Quake to finish off the final boss of Quake. You teleport into the boss of Quake and you destroy it, right? So the telefragging is is cool, but with for Sigil 2 to make it even harder, these cyber demons are not telefragable. You have to kill them, right? And so on level one, you have to be able to kill. If you want 100% the level, you have to kill the cyber demon and you have to figure out how to do it. And, and it is a little bit unique. And, uh, so I'd, I'd imagine that the people who are going to play sigil two are the kind of people who want to hundred percent the level. So, yeah. Oh, oh. <laughs> and guess what? So hundred percenting the level is not just the cyber demon. I've created a new secret and it's one, this one type of secret that's on every sigil level. And it, okay. and it takes advantage of a meme, a funny meme in the doom community, which is the fire blue meme. Okay. And fire blue is the name of a texture that is not really very good. It is <laughs> it is a red pixel and a blue pixel, and it's just a mess of them, and it looks like I know, crap, right? I know exactly what it is, yeah. <laughs> okay, so the fire blue pixel wall is a joke, but in Sigil 2, there are there's one fire blue room. The ceiling and the floor, one's blue, one's red. The walls are all fire blue. The room is marked as secret. It has a single idiot wimpy enemy in it and it has items in it which means if you can't find that room you can't 100 percent the level in secrets kills oh. or items and you evil. need to find the fire blue room and the way that you find Love the it. fire blue room is to find the fire blue hidden texture on the level and shoot it okay, and when you sure. shoot that texture you open up the secret door usually near where you're at but it's also like that's another thing that's a design consistency through every one of of Sigil 2's levels is find the fire blue secret or you will not 100% that level. This just went from like interview to strategy guide. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> um, so zooming out a little bit, I saw I heard you say in another interview that you have to keep making games, um, which I thought was something that on some level I relate to. And I understand that like you like, I think a lot of people feel that need to really express themselves through art, whether it's, you know, painting or film or whatever. Um, what is it about games in particular that you're so passionate and why do you need to keep making games? Even though obviously you have like a 30 plus year career that's been very successful. Um, what is it about games that makes you, you have to keep making them? Um, I think it's just the amount of the amount of creativity that games offer. You know, if you're drawing, there's a crazy amount of of artistry that you can put down on paper, you know, or even digitally in Photoshop, like anything that you can think of, you know, if you can come up with an amazing image, you can like put that, you can put that into a, a, a painting or a drawing or whatever, but that's what it, that, but that's what that is. But imagine doing that inside of a game where you have a ton of those offer those opportunities to make a lot of different images that are meaningful or interesting, but also within the context of a world or a story or just an experience. And it's kind of up to whatever you want to make. I mean, you know, genres and new genres are born, you know, in the game industry kind of often. Yeah. Um, You know, genres are uh, progressed beyond where they were in the past. And, and sometimes splinter into subgenres. Um, 
So there's just so many ways. There's so many opportunities to just like create a new thing that no one has seen before. And if you want to be excited about game design, just go play indie games. They they yep. explore so many unique ideas, and it gives you as a as a as a designer just this perspective of like I do boring stuff. Like <laughs> my stuff yeah. must is boring compared to this really cool stuff that these indies are doing. Why am I stuck in this creativity box that I put myself in? Why can't I break out of that box and do something brand new? And that is the idea. Like that's the thing that can like drives me is to yeah. be able to experiment like that sometime and make something else new that I didn't even think that I could make, you know, like I, that's, that's, there's just, it's like a guitar player, a guitar player can do so much on the guitar, but they're, they, they have their box that they're creating through their career that they live in and to get out of that box, you know, you listen to other guitarists that do stuff that you don't do at all yeah. it's like to get out of that, that, that box is who you are. And to like get out of that box is difficult and it, and it, and it requires, you know, a lot of effort to, to get out of there and to something really brand new, which might open a lot of creative horizons. So the idea that that exists is a driver to keep the, on going, right? To like the, kind of the unexplored frontier. Exactly. There's this yeah. personal, personal unexplored frontiers out there that I could get into. And I'm excited about doing that at some point, you know? It's it's like that's why I love making games is because it's just pure creativity. It's pure ideas turned into reality. Yeah, um, you know, and it's I just uh, and it's just like the most music, the sound effects, the visuals, the effects, the movement. You know, the the what what it's doing to the player, the emotions that you can get out of somebody. <clears throat> All of that stuff is, you know, you can do that in movies, but you can do it even more so in the game. You know, and then you can react like in a movie, you don't really react except for a jump scare. But in a game, you react in the world to get out of the situation or you react to the situation. And it's just like that craziness uh, of of creativity is yeah. just something I love. Well, it's, it's, it's a multi-pronged thing, right? Because you can have like creativity and writing and creativity and storytelling. Um, but then in games, you can also have creativity of mechanics and you can have creativity of input and you can have these things that people have never not just seen before, but never experienced before. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it's a really beautiful thing. <clears throat> um, all right. So one of the reasons that we've been talking, uh, you know, mostly via email with the museum uh, is because of your of our archival work and specifically in regards to uh, Doom and its relationship to Next Step. Um, which is an operating system. Uh, if people have seen any of the Steve Jobs documentaries where he splits off, you know, he gets laid off and he goes like, I'm going to start my own company. Anyway, Next Step was a, 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 a computing company that made these uh, really high-end uh, workstations for professionals. Um, and a lot of the early Doom tools were, were built on that. And even from what, from what I understand, an early version of Doom ran on Next Step uh, before it targeted MS-DOS. Can you kind of tell me about those early tools and versions? And like where that came from? Yeah. <clears throat> so we used to develop games for DOS using DOS, like Wolfenstein and Commander Keen and, and all the other games. Like in, in 1991, we made 13 different games. You know, and it's like, that's a lot of, <clears throat> that's it's a crazy. lot of DOS. <laughs> it is, it's crazy. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> my, uh, my autobiography goes into detail on every single thing that happened in 1991. But <clears throat> the thing about Doom was that 
John Carmack got excited about this next computer. That was the name of the company was Next Computer Inc. Mm-hmm. And he was very excited about this new workstation because it wasn't the hardware, it was the software, it was the operating system that looked like it was just light years ahead of, of DOS. So um, so that's what we so that's what we wanted to use like for the next game. It was and this was in really in Christmas of 91. So we were using 92 just to do some page layout and everything, kind of get used to like, what is this, what does this workstation do? We decided to get workstations for everybody that was making Doom. And at that time, there were only five of us. <laughs> so there were five Next Step machines plus another one that turned into like the 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 grabber for all the, the, the rotoscoping that we were doing for, you know, the enemies and the weapons and stuff. But we decided to do everything different with Doom. So we changed our development platform 100% to next to next computer with Next Step 3.3. Um, we also had a DOS machine next to us. And so that DOS machine was basically just to run the game. And Doom was 100% created on Next Step from beginning to end. Hmm. We made Doom 2 on it. We made Quake on it. Heretic and Hexen were made on it. Strife was made on it. All these games were using the Doom, uh, you know, technology ecosystem, which only existed on uh, Next Step. We had nothing on DOS. <laughs> DOS just ran the game. So we would cross-compile the executable. We would make an EXE on Next Step, even though it uses .apps, right? Because Next Step is really Mac OS today. Yeah. Um, so those, so those, so we would make like fat binaries of dot apps even, and that would run on the four different architectures that we had in the office. So we had PA Spark and we had Intel's Motorola sixty eight K, and uh, and uh, there's one other PowerPC or something. So we had all of those architectures as boxes in our office, and you know we would compile fat binaries, and it would run on every every single one of them exactly the same. So. It was it was really really cool doing this cross development work and being able to do things like, you know, do video captures of characters like physical creatures and that that like shortcutted so much work for all the animations, the rotations of them, and everything that we were doing. Um, it just made things much faster, and uh, and so we we were just doing so many new things during the development of, of uh, Doom that, you know, that workstation was pretty critical to being able to mount, you know, surmount the obstacles that we were hitting with like creating the BSP trees, making yeah. the rendering fast, you know, all of that stuff. It was, it was, uh, the amount of data that we were creating a game that was four megabytes at that time, you know, needing to create, needing to use a DOS extender to even load stuff. So it was like, we we're, we we're at a turning point with doom. I, yeah, I don't think I realized that, uh, that, it was that ingrained in the process. For some reason, I thought that it was just like early on in the process, and then and then you switched over to DOS afterwards. Um, but as a uh, as a former iOS developer, I have typed the, the letters NS more times than I can count. There you <laughs> go, <Yeah. laughs> uh, which stands for that. next step. Uh, so that that legacy went on for for decades, actually. Yeah, uh, and it is kind of the the um, the early foundations of what eventually became you know uh, Mac OS and and uh, iOS and all those. Um, but can you tell me about some of the specific tools that were used, um, specifically the, the level designer and, and kind of uh, what that workflow was like in terms of getting from 
uh, you know, from from like an ASCII text file to to a level in the game? <laughs> so we had no ASCII text files. So it was great. Um, I wrote a, I wrote a next step app called Doom Ed for Doom Editor, and it was very similar to say Doom Builder Two or Ultimate Doom Builder on DOS right now or on Windows. If you download that for free. Um, you can just do a Google on those things and those tools, when they load up, they look basically close to what I was, what I made for doom ed, but you've seen doom ed, right? So you know what yeah. it looks like. And so modern doom, uh, editors look pretty similar to that, except that now you can actually see the little like icons and characters, you know, on the, on the things. So basically we'd use, we would use, I would, it's just me and Tom Hall at the beginning. And then when Tom left, then it was Sandy Peterson but it's just two of us level designers and we would be in the tool and we would draw, say a room and place a character in it. And I click the BSP button up there and then it launches a process. You know, this is next step. So it just launches a process, an external process, like an exec. And, uh, it saves the, uh, the file, the, the map file is in a, a text format. So it's a good source format that's readable. And so this BSP program would take that and turn it into actual data and then create the BSP tree and then save that out as what's called a WAD file. And the WAD file just stood for where's all the data. And it was just the data there's inside of a WAD file are all the little pieces of the map that, that, that all the pieces of data that comprise the idea of a map, uh, this, this, you know, the, that the engine can load and, and use to, to make the map, you know, the visibility parts of it and all that kind of stuff. Um, so that was, so the, the, the process was, uh, on, on my, you know, say, I think it was on my left, I have my DOS computer and I'm in next step and I create the level really quick and I BSP it and it saves it into a directory that is in a, a next, uh, oh, sorry, a netware 3.3 object, which maps to a NetWare file server in our office, which our DOS machines are also connected to. So I just go over to my DOS machine. I copy the level from the Z drive where the, where the NetWare map was. And I just copy it into the Doom directory and I just run Doom. And Doom loads up and it runs that little level that I just made. And I let, let it sit there. And then I go over to the next step. I'm looking at the screen. I'm like, yeah, let me add that over there or whatever. Mm. And I go and I modify it on next step, click BSP again. And then I get, basically get out of DOS, copy it again, just usually up arrow enter because it's just like command, you know, just remembers the command and then run, run doom again with the command line that just loads that level immediately up and runs into it. And there it is. It's, it's new. Is this is this process similar to what other studios were using at the time? Because you, you talk about you know making thirteen games in nineteen ninety one, and I'm curious if like this kind of you know very uh, straightforward and quick process of, of iteration is is part of the reason that you were able to be so prolific. It was uh, partially fast iteration. Um, it was also the fact that we created the concept of an engine, which basically mm -hmm. separated the game code and the engine code from the data of the game, which is everything you see in here, you know, the, the levels, the sprites, the audio, the music, you know, the sound effects, the music, um, special pieces of data, all that stuff is separated out of the engine. So you can make completely different games by replacing all of that stuff and doing some work in the, in the engine code if you wanted to, 
And later on, we even separated the gameplay code from the engine code and made that scriptable. So we came up with the idea of the engine in 1990, and that was in the very first Commander Keen game. And we licensed an engine in the summer of 91 for the first time. But by, by that point, we were basically making new games by taking the engine from the previous game and just modifying uh, some of the code inside of it because we have new enemies and we're just doing some new experimentation with game design. But all the data is being made by our artist and me and Tom, creative director, and we're basically creating the whole game outside of the yeah. engine code. And, uh, and so we could do it very fast because we don't need to interrupt the programmer we are just doing all this other stuff using that engine. Yeah. And, uh, and so we could just like make games faster, but it was also because at that time we had, you know, in 1990, we had been making games for 10 years each. So we already were experts when we got together. So, um, so yeah, we, we, uh, we were really fast because we, we had lots of experience. We created a methodology that was very efficient and fast. Um, and, uh, and we were driven, so we were focused. There were no notifications, no internet. There was no cell phones. It was. <laughs> I'm sure that pure, helped. Right, yeah. it helped so much. Um, and uh, yeah, we were. We were. Um, we knew what we what we needed to do. We didn't do prototypes. We just came up with the idea, and we immediately started making the game. Hmm. And we knew how to do it because before we worked together. 10 years of games to, for us was actually dozens and dozens of games. It wasn't like I made sure. a couple of games. You right. know, like Doom was my 90th game. <laughs> I wow. 89 games before yeah. Doom. So Most people I, don't have a, don't have that in their, their career. So Yeah, yeah. Like before even starting in software, I'd made at least 60 games. So, you know, and Tom Hall also made a shitload of games. Like so um, yeah, production cycles are a lot longer these days. Oh yeah. It, there's it's so much complexity nowadays. With with four people, like we started, you know, it's so much easier. Even today with four people, it is simple and you can get a lot done fast a lot not done with experienced people. Um, but as it gets bigger and bigger, it's just like the time really expands because of yeah. the complexity of the the systems that we're using now. Yeah, and I think we take we take engines for granted these days. Um, but it is interesting to hear about like kind of in the early days, like oh, we can separate these two, you know, types of complexity and and work on them separately, which is which is interesting. Yeah, um, I know that you're I know that you're short on time, um, uh, but I wanted to first leave it open for you to uh, plug what you've got coming up. I know that you've got Sigil Two coming up, um, and also I believe you're doing a, a live stream close to the. 30th anniversary. So if you want to um, talk about those two things. Yeah. So December 10th is the 30th anniversary. That is the day that people will be able to just download for free Sigil 2. Um, that'll have the MIDI music in it. And if people want to hear the really awesome sound, the soundtrack that plays in there, like actual MP3s, um, it's like six euro on, on the same site. And if you want a big box, you go to our site and buy one of the boxes. Right now, there's only one left because the other two were collectors and they, they sold out like within a minute. Um, but the, the, the shotgun shell, USB poster, all that kind of stuff is in it. The cover art is nuts. Um, the music is so good. And uh, I think the whole experience is just like amped up. You know, the original sigil just amped up. It software is publishing it that day. So December 10th. It will be on all the consoles, uh, you know, Switch and Xbox and stuff. And I'm doing a live stream 
talk with John Carmack on Twitch, where we uh, are talking together with David Craddock, who is a FPS historian, and we're just talking about Doom and uh, possibly its development, its effect on the world, and you know where it's at now, and all that kind of stuff. So it'll be really, really fun. And I believe that's on December 10th as well, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, that's all uh, that day. <laughs> 8, p.m., 8 p.m. GMT, which I think is uh, morning-ish, morning to noon in the United States. I'm not going to try to do all the time conversions. But um, yeah, uh, we'll look for you on Twitch and excited yeah. about the uh, 30th anniversary of Doom. Thanks. Same here. <laughs> uh, John Romero. John Romero, thank you yeah. so much for joining us today. Uh, yeah. it's, it's a pleasure to have you on. Honestly, it's an honor to talk to you. Um, and yeah, I really, I really appreciate you taking the time. Awesome. Well, thanks for, uh, being very interested in doom and the next stuff. <laughs> hey, we, that, we, we love all that kind of stuff. We get into the weeds. <laughs> nice. Nice. Love it. All right. Thank you, John. We'll take care and, uh, have a good day. Thanks. You too. Thank you for listening to the museum of art and digital entertainment official podcast. If you've got any thoughts, questions, corrections, or general museum ideas, shoot us an email at info at themade.org. Our fully interactive museum is located at 921 Washington Street in beautiful downtown Oakland. Hours are noon to 7 Wednesdays and Thursdays, 11 a.m. to 9 p.m. Fridays and Saturdays, and 11 a.m. to 7 p.m. on Sundays. Thank you especially to our donors and Patreon supporters who help keep The Maid afloat. Until next time, I'm Jed. We'll see you in a few weeks.